are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. I think we know a little something about Pharisees, right? They're lawyers, people who uh, follow the law, and yet there's a, a misunderstanding of the Old Testament law was not unique to them in the days of Jesus. They knew the Old Testament law really well, okay? Uh, they would even memorize it. But they would often misunderstand the purpose of the law. And today, like many of us perhaps, a lot of people really have no idea what the true purpose of the law is either. For instance, we all know, or I should ask, do you know the purpose of the bathroom scale? Do you? Do you really know the purpose of a bathroom scale? It weighs us, right? And essentially tells us how far we are from what we may perceive to be healthy, a healthy weight, whatever that might be. Now, there are two young boys, and they were closely examining bathroom scales on display at the department store. One asked, hey, have you ever seen one of these before? Another kid said, yeah, my mom and dad have one. And so the first boy said, well, what's it for? And the second boy answered, well, I don't know, but I think you stand on it and it makes you get mad. <laughs> now the idea, the subject behind this entire text is talking about justification. And so I want to define that again for you. And I, and, I, and I gave you the definition last week, but I want to say it again. Justify is the verb form of the word what? Very good. Righteous. Right? And to justify yourself is to make yourself right or righteous. And to justify someone else is to make them right or declare them right. Justice. I'm righteous. Right? And since we're talking about a relationship with God, the issue is on what possible basis can we have a right standing before God? And on what basis will God declare us righteous? Because that's what ultimately matters, and that is how will we be justified before our Creator God at the end of the day. It's not whether that person or that person approves of you. It's whether God approves of you. So here's our first point is that we can't earn God's approval. More precisely, you cannot be justified by keeping God's law. Now, here's the thing. If you live a pretty good life, no speeding tickets. How many of you guys have so far this year have not gotten a traffic ticket? Good for you. It's only been like two months, right? <laughs> you paid your taxes. Some of you guys are coming close April 15th, right? You've given to a church, charities. Perhaps you were a fantastic student all throughout grade school and even college straight A's. You got a decent job. And, and maybe, maybe here's the cherry on top. You're also a good person, as in you're kind, and you're courteous to people around you. Perhaps even on the way to church today, you helped an elderly woman cross the street. You might even feel justified. In fact, your friends and your family may openly and sincerely justify you. As a parent, I'll tell you something. I, I'm in the I have the mentality right now that even though my daughter is in her terrible two stage, that in my mind, in my eyes, she can do no wrong. You know what I mean? Some of you are like, no, I, I don't. 
Okay, but let me give you an example. Like, to me, she's perfect. So my wife and I, we were flipping through our iPhone photos, iPhotos, and we came across a picture of Ada, and she wasn't in the best angle, and she didn't have the best light, so she kind of looked like, <laughs> like that. And so my wife goes, ooh. And I said, how dare you? <laughs> she is beautiful. She is the most beautiful baby in the world. We'll justify. We'll justify one another. Declare them righteous based on whatever, based on performance, based on looks, based on everything. Even in our own minds and hearts, when we know that we have even failed to live up to what is right, we'll try to justify ourselves. Perhaps you shouldn't have done this or gone to that place or maybe you shouldn't have missed out on church or whatever. Even though we know it was wrong, don't we still try to justify ourselves by remembering this one thing? that other people are much worse than we are? I mean, let's be honest. If anyone here has been in a school setting, let, let me give you an example. Let's say you didn't prepare for class by reading up. Has anyone ever done that? Right. So you're freaking out because you know this class is the one where the professor calls the students out. Right? So the teacher calls on you. And you give an uneducated response. The teacher is completely unamused by your obvious lack of effort, but nonetheless moves on. But then the next person that he calls on was in a worse situation than you. This guy didn't even read any of the course material since day one. But the teacher calls on him. And so he just sits there, draws a blank stare, and says, I have no idea. I didn't even read it. Now the teacher is mad, and he publicly rebukes the student in front of the classroom. Now here's the thing. Before, you were embarrassed and maybe even mad at yourself for knowing that you should have diligently prepared and studied for the class. But now after seeing the other student crash and burn, you think, well, thank God I wasn't that unprepared. Right? Oh, he just made me look good. We need to stop depending on others to make you look good because, let's be honest, it doesn't take much, right? We're constantly looking for ways to justify ourselves. Now, I remember going to a funeral in high school. This individual committed suicide. I wasn't close with him, but I did have a class with him. And so the school actually encouraged his entire grade and the, and the uh, grade above his as well to just attend the funeral to support the family, to support him for sake of solidarity, and so on. Now, what I knew of this student was, aside from the fact that he was a drug user and he sold drugs on campus and elsewhere, and that he was like a cussing sailor, I also knew in a conversation that a group of us had that he was unsaved. He says, I'm a loud and proud atheist, and he would condemn Christianity. Well, at the funeral, his parents, who are Catholic, and the priest comes up. And the priest, he begins to speak. And he begins to justify this individual. The priest began to immortalize him as a saint because, and I quote, he was a nice and good kid. Because his parents were devout members of the Catholic Church. You see, even among those who are 
not righteous are often justified. But if we honestly face the reality of God's righteous standard, if you really want to consider what God thinks is justifiable, what his standard is, it should actually make us kind of quiver, make us feel a bit uncomfortable. People don't like God's righteous standards, which is why in this day and in the days before and in the days to come, people will continue to try to attempt to redefine God because they don't like the way God is through Scripture. They will redefine God into some impotent fragment of their delusion imagination whose main role, if people ascribe him any role, is to simply make the individual happy with their blatant and brazen unrighteousness so that no matter what your behavior might be, no matter how spiritually dead you are, no matter how many sins that you glorify and how much holiness you are condemning, we'll force ourselves to think that God is somehow good with us. That somehow God, he understands us, and so therefore he approves of us. That is us redefining God. I remember a Larry King live show where Pastor John MacArthur, the pastor of Grace Community Church in California, he had this dialogue or debate with a mayor from some city in California, maybe in San Francisco. The issue was obviously, like it is often today, about same-sex marriage. And so the mayor, he starts off the conversation of the dialogue by saying, look, pastor, I'm a devout Catholic. I'm a Christian. I attend a Catholic church. I was married in one. But I think, and then Pastor MacArthur cuts him off and says, well, do you believe in the Bible? That's when Larry King pipes up and he says, well, pastor, what does that have to do with anything? And John MacArthur says, well, he started off by saying he was a Catholic, so I'm just asking him where his authority comes from. And so MacArthur asked the mayor, Mayor, do you believe in the Bible? And the mayor flippantly and snidely responds, because he knew exactly where John MacArthur was going. He says, yeah, whatever, I suppose I do. And your response is, Pastor? Then Pastor MacArthur, he starts listing off verses in Scripture of God's righteous standards of holiness and what is unholy to him. And the mayor just rolls his eyes because what Pastor MacArthur was quoting obviously didn't fit his definition of righteousness. A lot of people think the God of the Bible is mean and uncaring. They have it totally wrong. He is the opposite. He's infinite love. He's a God who heaps blessings on his people. But he has a standard. And what goes against that standard is sin of self-righteousness. And so there are repercussions to any reliance, any trust, any value of anything but God. That's why he's not only God of blessings, but he's also God of curses too. Now verses 10, verse 10 is taken from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 27, in fact, here God's chosen people, Israel, they're about to enter the promised land, okay? Now remember, God had delivered them from Egypt. He had preserved them through the years of wandering in the desert wilderness. And now he was about to give them the land that he had promised their forefathers. Now throughout this entire time, God had repeatedly demonstrated and proven to them of his blessings for them, of his love for them, of his mercy and his grace upon them. He's saying, I am here for you. Trust me, follow me, and I will lead you all throughout. 
But then in Deuteronomy 27, God, he, he had the people do an interesting activity at that time. You see, he said, when you guys enter the promised land, I want you guys to divide into two groups. You're still my people, and you still inherit the promised land, but I want you to divide into two groups. One group goes up to Mount Ebal, and the second group goes up to Mount Gerizim. And I want you guys to face each other, and one group, I want you to shout out and announce God's blessings, and the other group to shout back God's promised curses. Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole thing. It'll take a little while, but I'm going to give you a couple examples. Cursed be the man who makes a graven image. And the people shall answer and say, Amen, it says. Cursed be the one who dishonors his father and mother. And the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due, uh, due to the uh, fatherless and the widow. And the people shall, shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who is sexually immoral. And there's a list of things that are unpleasing to the Lord. Sexual, immor sexual immorality. And it says, then all the people said, Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. And the people shall say, Amen. And then here we come to the words Quoted in our text. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them, and the people shall say amen. Now, for us, when we hear this, we're thinking, this sounds pretty harsh. This calling out these curses, these not just these arbitrary curses, but these promised curses of God. Now, I'm sure it kind of tingles and hurts our little sense of ears. But you know what God is saying at that moment? God is saying to his people, he's saying, I am holy and I define what is righteousness. Not you, not me, not society, not culture, not the world, not the devil, nothing. I am the standard of righteousness. Perfection. Even in his covenant with his people, it not only includes promises of blessings, but threatened curses, rejection for people who fail to keep it. So yes, your good behavior, you being a better wife than her, a better husband than him, having better kids than them, or you've attended a better college than that person, or you make more money or have a more reputable job than that person, may, it may make you feel good and justified compared with others, you, however, will find no comfort when you seek to stand before God based on anything you have done, though. You'll find no comfort whatsoever. And here's why. Because in verse 10, God gives us his standard of a passing score, and that is 100%. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things, written in the book of the law. Now, if you recall our previous series in James, James 2.10, it says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles, stumbles just at one single point is guilty of breaking all of it. God's standard isn't that we generally keep the law or just make the most of it. His standard is that we keep every single point of it. You know, in most of my, or if not all my seminary classes, a C is a fail. I think that's true for other graduate and postgraduate programs as well. So if you don't at least get a B minus, then you fail, and you get, you get to take over the class all over again, and you get to pay all that money all over again. Yay, right? For God, anything less than an A plus 
is a fail. And I'm not talking about 98, 99, I'm talking about 100%. But the text goes even further than that. Because that all things isn't all of the law only, but it's also a continual obedience to all of the law. So it's not like you got to follow A through Z, but you got to do it all the time. Look, let's be honest with ourselves. There are days when we just love to pat ourselves on the back because we had a moment of greatness, a moment where we spoke encouragement to someone and they were lifted up, and I'm proud of you for doing that, but they were, it was nonetheless a moment, a moment when we stayed calm and patient when our kids were going crazy, a moment when someone offended you, but that moment, instead of responding, retaliating anger, you responded with grace and truth and understanding and love, and these moments made you realize, wow, I'm, I'm actually a pretty good person. Good on me. I'm doing better. I'm becoming better adjusted. I'm growing spiritually and emotionally. But God says, you know that moment that you had on Monday? I want that all the time. Every time. Every second. For the rest of your life. Not just you follow all the rules and regulations and be a law-abiding citizens. No, no, no. I want you to be that all the time. That's what it takes to fit my standard, you see. I want pure, unrelenting, perpetual, continual obedience. But what's the reality, people? The reality is we sin all the time, don't we? Turn to your neighbor and say, I've sinned today. We do. Let's say, let's say we sin three times a day. You know I'm being conservative. <laughs> right? That's a thousand times a year. If you live 50 years, that's 50,000 sins. 50,000 times that your words, that your thoughts, that your actions were unacceptable to a perfect all the time, holy all the time, righteous all the time, eternal God. I mean, do you really want to go into judgment with that kind of a record? Lord, I only got 50,000 sins. Do you really think that a holy, righteous God will just sweep those infractions under his cosmic rug and go like this and say, no, you're fine. This is God's standard, people. His standard is at every point of, in our lives, we must obey every detail of his law perfectly, continually, without ceasing, and then, only then, theoretically, can you be justified. So the person who says, hey, I can live a good life without God, God says, you might be able to live moments of goodness, but no, you cannot live a good life. You can't. You might have a moment here and there, a blip in the radar here and there. But you know what? Perpetually, continually, following every detail all the time, forget about it. Turn to your neighbor and say this. And what are we supposed to do? And this is my last, second last point. That is rest in Jesus. Oh, Hallelujah. What is faith? 
You talk to someone who's addicted to Star Wars, they'll say, faith is called a force. Some people think it's some sort of force. That faith is talked about in some sort of kind of upbeat and dynamic way. Some people have even said, faith is the power to believe in yourself, Oprah. Those say that the emphasis of faith is on the strength of the faith possessed by the one believing it. In other words, the more faith you have, the more your life will be to your advantage and in your favor. The more faith you have, the more blessings you'll receive. That's what they say. But we don't quite care about what they say. We want to know what the Bible says, right? Well, the Bible talks about faith a little bit differently. The strength of the believer's faith doesn't really matter much. Jesus says, all you need is the faith the size of a mustard seed. Matthew 17, 20. I love what R.C. Sproul said. He said, anybody can believe in God. What it means to be a Christian is to trust when he speaks, which does not require a leap of faith or a crucifixion of the intellect. It requires a crucifixion of your pride because no one is more trustworthy than God, he says. Let me sum it up for you. Faith is a desperate cry of a broken soul with no other hope but in Jesus. Does that make sense? All that matters is not you, but it's the object of our faith. Jesus. Having faith in the moon and the stars and the sun or man-made objects is all wishful thinking. Having faith in Jesus is what transforms is what alters your destiny. So people, rest your souls in Jesus. Say that to one another. Rest your souls in Jesus. In verses 13 and 14, we're called to rest in Jesus because Jesus took God's curse that we deserve. Now, we know Adam sinned when he didn't trust God. And he brought upon himself the curse of God. The Bible says that he lost his innocence and therefore he was spiritually and physically dead. Then God, he warned his people that if they turned away from him and trust in themselves, that he would curse them. And when they did turn away from God, God cursed them. He destroyed their land and they were enslaved by the Babylonians, as Habakkuk was saying here, right? And other nations as well. The prophets would constantly be begging the people, warning the people of God's wrath because of the sin of doubting God, of not believing God, of not trusting God, of not placing faith in God. Jesus even warned those who would face judgment day, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and the angels. You see, there's only one outcome when it comes to sin, and that is death. Wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death to the one who trusts in themselves and say, says, I got to do it for me. I'm numero uno. The one who says, it's by my works, by my meritorious righteousness, by my self-righteousness, by my actions, by my thoughts, everything... Let me tell you this. For those of us who think that way and live that way, God's curse is very real and it hangs over the head of every person who believes that. But verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. Think about that for a second. That curse that God had for all of humanity because of a rebellion and sin. That was over your head and my head. Because we were unable to perfectly and all the time follow the law of God. Jesus says, I will take that from you. In dying on the cross, Jesus swaps. He substitutes his life for ours. Our curse was transferred onto him. Remember that the wage of sin is death, that thing. Yeah, he paid the penalty of death for us. That, our, that death that our sins were the consequences of that we deserved. Jesus took that from you for you. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, amen. You see, when we continue to live and persist in our efforts to keep up the law, and despite the fact that we will inevitably continue to sin in our lives, we can try to, to live according to some self-righteous standards that we've made up. But we'll continue to just build up the ever-increasing curse of God's judgment upon us. You see, we can do good things in the way of the curse rather than the way of blessing. Do you know that? You can do good things in the way of a curse than a blessing. You can teach Sunday school and be still under the curse of God. You can, you can stand right here in front of you people and preach the word of God and I can still be under the curse of God. You can do the best things in the world. Give millions of dollars to those in need. Build up wonderful areas of, in the community to help the people who are in need. You can give to people who are in need. You can do all these wonderful, charitable, humanitarian-esque type of things. But if you do not do it, signed in the name of Jesus' blood, you are under the curse of God. Or... We can do all these things by humbly relying on God's promise of salvation through his son Jesus. We can do all these things not for our righteousness, not for our gain, but for the glory of God. You see, that curse or that blessing, it all depends on how you obey and who gets the credit. In other words, is it done in Jesus' name or yours? Is it done through Christ's righteousness or yours? Brothers and sisters, friends, we must acknowledge that we can never be good enough. We must crucify our pride. And any thought that there's anything in this world that can qualify us or justify us. We must abandon our hope in marriage as the ultimate relationship we need. You get that? Singles? even those who are married, we must abandon our career as our ultimate ambition in life. We must abandon our pleasures as our ultimate purpose for living. We must abandon any hope of trying to justify ourselves, justify our existence, and we need to simply, as the Bible says, rest our souls in Christ. Believing that he has taken our punishment and that he, he alone has set us free. Not because we've earned it, but because of his amazing grace. And so, brothers and sisters, what does this all mean? It means this. It is no longer us 
who have to stand upon our faith. But rather, we must rest completely in Christ alone, the object of our faith. Don't stand upon your faith. Rest upon Christ. And so we serve because we're loved and accepted by Jesus. We worship because we're loved and accepted by Jesus. We work because we're loved and accepted by Jesus. We give because we're loved and accepted by Jesus. We do all things for the glory of God because of his amazing grace displayed on that cross. Because we are accepted and loved by Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Maybe there are some here right now who are filled with just guilt, who are filled with just a lot of shame. And you feel that way because of your failures, because you're not good enough. You have a failed marriage, a failed relationship, failed children, failed whatever. Maybe you failed academically. Maybe you didn't meet your parents' expectations. Maybe you slipped up sexually, defiling yourself or defiling someone else. Maybe you've compromised in your faith as well. That when there was a moment for you to speak out God's truth, you instead kept your mouth shut and you allowed the people, the unbelieving world, to condemn Christ and to mock him. Whatever it might be, brothers and sisters and friends, Know that guilt and shame is a tactic of the enemy to keep you from coming to the grace of God. The grace of God is greater than any sin that we've ever committed. The grace of God is more than enough. And so he asks you, whatever you've done this past week or the weeks to come, no matter how inadequate or unqualified you might think you are, if you just come to him and surrender and crucify your pride in thinking that you need to do this yourself. Know that the arms of our Lord and Savior is wide open. And he says, come to me just as you are. Let a new, dynamic, amazing relationship of faith as resting upon the laurels of Christ alone start today, this moment. Come before him. In complete faith. Faith not in the fact that you got to stand up and be upright and do right. No. But faith in knowing that Christ is upright and has done right and has completed it all. I want to give you guys just a brief moment here. And to just lay yourself bare before the Holy Spirit. Before the throne of God's grace and say, God, I want to come back, I need to come back. Or maybe for some of you, you're still questioning. Talk to God. Open your heart to Him. And pray for that encounter today. Only the Holy Spirit can cause you to believe. So pray for the Holy Spirit to come into your life today.